So great of Robert and Karen to put that video together, and we want to encourage you, church, to sign up for our marriage conference. You can do that online uh, the 16th and 17th of February. Uh, there's child care. There's, it, it's going to be a great, uh, going to be a wonderful time. So we want to encourage you to be part of that. You can register online at our church, please, uh, at our website. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if you will. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, Daryl and Margaret Pierman uh, were longtime members at our church and sensed God's call on their lives to serve as missionaries. So for a, a brief stint, they served with the IMB in Suriname in South America. And when things kind of ended there, they decided they wanted to continue that ministry and they wanted to continue serving there. So they live here in Texas, but they take several trips down to Suriname uh, each year. And they're reaching remote villages, loving people, helping with water. They're, they're, they're sharing the gospel and, they're, and they're, they're making a difference. They're doing what they can to uh, bring the message of the gospel to Suriname. In a recent uh, post, a recent blog post that they they put out, Margaret told the story of uh, a harrowing situation that had all the makings of what could be a corrupt crime drama when it comes to the police. And so they're driving in, in the town there and, and they get pulled over. Right? They get pulled over and uh, the policeman comes up and he kind of bangs on the window of the, do- of the car and, and they're like, what's going on? And they, they start telling them that the, about this law that they didn't know anything about. So they took all their documents and they went off and they went to a different location. And then they came back and they said, Daryl, you got to come with us. So Daryl had to go with them. And Margaret's sitting in the car alone and she's afraid and she's scared. And she calls some of her friends there and they all begin to pray. They just begin to pray that God would be merciful, that God would be gracious, that he would move in the situation. After a period of time, Daryl comes back to the car and they're just sitting there kind of wondering what is going on on and and then eventually uh the policeman's coming and and daryl's gonna have to pay a fine you know like he's gonna have to pay a fine on the spot and all this stuff and at some point in the conversation daryl just says can i pray for you can i pray for you and the policeman i guess says okay and daryl begins to pray and everything changes at that moment the policeman takes back the ticket that he had written gives back the cash that they had given and all their documents come back and they were free to just go on. It was clearly a scary situation for the pyramids. Clearly a scary situation. But God rescued them in the moment. It was amazing. It was a great story to read, to know them and to know what God is doing. Now, this morning, we're going to Paul's going to continue the theme of affliction and comfort that he opened the letter with And he's going to give a practical example of how he has experienced God's grace and comfort in the midst of affliction, in the midst of what was an incredibly difficult time. So would you stand, please? We're going to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read verses 8 through 11. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11, when life seems unbearable. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. 
you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us enough to give us your word. Thank you that you are present with us, Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, that you never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you, God, that you have called us to your family, that we are your children, that we are under your care. Thank you that in these moments, your spirit will speak and that your people will hear and that your people will be changed. God, we're grateful and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. You know, there's a big difference between book knowledge or head knowledge and experience. That's why when first-time mothers are getting ready to go to the hospital and deliver, sorry dads, they don't want you in the room with them. They want mama in the room with them. Why? Because for mama, it's been there, it's done that. Now, a dad can read all the books. A dad can read all the literature. Dad can, can figure out like, okay, you should have this technique now and you should do this then and but it doesn't go very far, and it won't be very authoritative. We want someone who has been through it, who is speaking to us, who has experienced what they're talking about, and that's what Paul is doing here. Paul wrote this. He had the knowledge that, that God is with him always, that God is a God who rescues, that God is a God who delivers, but not only does he know that, he knows it because he has experienced it. Because he has experienced God's deliverance in his life. Now Paul tells the church he doesn't want them to be unaware of this affliction that he experienced in Asia. Now when he says Asia, it's the area that we would call Asia Minor today. And because Paul doesn't provide much detail about uh, the actual affliction, we assume that the Corinthian church probably knew what he was referring to. We actually don't know what he was referring to specifically. We're going to look at some different theories of what people thought in a moment, but we don't know exactly. But the fact that the Corinthians likely knew what Paul was referring to probably means that it wasn't just the situation that Paul didn't want the Corinthians to be ignorant of, but it was their interpretation of the affliction. Remember, there were several in the church who were saying that, hey, Paul, we don't know if we can believe you. We don't know how, how you could be an apostle and suffer so much. How can this be? Well, whatever the affliction was, it was so difficult, Paul says, that they were utterly burdened beyond their strength. In fact, they were despairing of life itself. So tense and so difficult was the situation that Paul thought he was a goner. He thought he wasn't going to make it. Now, many have tried to identify the specific situation that Paul is talking about. Some believe that Paul is referring to the riot in Ephesus, Ephesus being the leading city of Asia at that time. This is recorded for us in Acts chapter 19. Luke records it for us. Now, if this was it, then Luke probably understated exactly what happened 
uh, in that text. We don't know all the details. Luke kind of gives us an overview, but if that's what it was, then there were probably more things that Luke left out. Some believe that Paul was referring to some kind of a physical ailment, maybe a physical ailment that flared up, that he was struggling with, that he was dealing with, and maybe even could have, could have killed him in that moment. Others believe that Paul was referring to some situation, perhaps unrecorded in scripture, of persecution or imprisonment that Paul faced. Clearly, Paul had faced many afflictions in his life. In fact, if we turn to 2 Corinthians 11, I'm going to read verses 24 through 27. Paul's going to kind of give us a picture of what he's dealt with. In verse 23, I'll start. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman with greater labors, far more imprisonments, and with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless nights in hunger and thirst and often without food, in cold and in exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxieties for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. Paul suffered. Paul had many afflictions, many difficulties in his ministries. And we don't know the specific affliction that Paul mentions here in verse 8. But what we do know, it's clear that Christians are not exempt from affliction and difficulty in life. Now, in the vibrant city that was Corinth, this was an inconvenient truth. The people of Corinth, they, they long for power, they long for the boasting, they long for the situation in life that they were above everyone else, right? It was an upward mobile place. Suffering, difficulty, struggle, oh, come on. I mean, many saw that suffering was antithetical to legitimate Christian discipleship, to following Jesus, False teachers in the church, as I said before, they questioned Paul because of how much he did suffer. And of course, throughout history, not just when it comes to certain Christian thoughts, but also in other religions, suffering is equated to God's direct punishment, right? You must have done something wrong, and that's why you're suffering the way you are. You must have you must have really sinned. You must have really made God angry. And that's why you're experiencing the suffering that you're experiencing. You know, one of the hard things about affliction, one of the hard things about difficulties that we face is it all happens under the sovereign hand of God. I want you to consider this. As Paul was traveling to Damascus to persecute other Christians, those who follow Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus appears to him and the, the light is so bright that Paul becomes blinded. And you recall that God 
uh, enlists a guy named Ananias to go and to speak to Paul and to give him his sight back. And Ananias is nervous about this. He's like, well, wait a minute, I've heard some things about this guy. I've heard some rumors about this guy. I'm a little concerned. And God says, or Jesus says to Ananias in that moment, look, he's, he's giving me my chosen vessel. And I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. Acts chapter 9. Friends, the New Testament is clear that trials are part of living in a fallen world. And that's why Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 1 Peter in chapter 4. Now, rather than a direct consequence of sin, God allows trials and difficulties and afflictions into our lives to transform our character and to even prove our faith. Now, I can almost guarantee that no one in this room has received the 40 lashes minus one. By the way, I don't know why they don't just call it 39 lashes. that, That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But that said, none of us are immune from facing seemingly unbearable situations. None of us. None of us are immune from that. I've felt that way. I mean, this past year has been incredibly difficult. Many times I felt like I was on a boat that was taking on water, that was sinking. Many times I've wept over the brokenness that is my life and what it means for my family and what it means for our church. I felt guilty over not being able to do all the things that I want to do as a pastor. I felt like I've let people down. I've wondered how many people I've let down. Maybe I'm the reason why the church isn't growing. Maybe I'm the reason why some people have left. If you've read my Caring Bridge post, you know the trials. You know the anxieties that I've battled. What's the next scan going to reveal? And what's the next hurdle that we're going to have to face? And the spiritual warfare through it all, it's been relentless at times. Right? If you were just a better husband... If you were just a better dad, if you were just a better pastor, then maybe this wouldn't be happening in your life. And even now, I deal with all sorts of complications stemming from the various surgeries I've had. Complications that aren't fun. Complications that make difficult, make life difficult right now. And they tell me things are going to improve some. I mean, they say that. They say things are going to improve, and I hope they do. But friends, normal was like the first thing that was thrown off the boat that was sinking. Okay? So life's tough, but I'm not the only one because you're facing trials too. You're facing difficulties too. You're facing affliction too. You've felt that way at times. Maybe it's a significant struggle, a health crisis, divorce, unexpected death, loss of a job. Maybe it's depression And it's not just the big things, friends, that can make us feel this way, right? Sometimes just daily living can drag us down at times. The stresses associated with our jobs or our marriages or our parenting or our friendships or our financial situations, these can all bring uh, anxiety or trouble into our lives. And the comparison game only adds stress, right? Oh, look at their marriage. Look at their kids. Look at their spirituality. Look at their situation. Sometimes we get down in life because we think everyone has it better than we do. Everyone has everything all together and figured out. 
But as Christians, friends, we shouldn't be shocked when we face affliction. We shouldn't be shocked even when we get discouraged because that's how God made us. We're emotional creatures, right? That's how God made us. However, we need to be careful not to let our feelings keep us from seeing reality. We're called to live by faith and not by sight. Faith tells us that the cross of Christ means that God loves us deeply. Faith tells us that nothing happens outside the sovereign hand of God, that he is caring for us. Faith tells us that he is using all things for our good, for our ultimate good. And faith tells us that our future is secure because of the finished work of Christ. My wife shared with me a paragraph the other day uh, from Paul Tripp's devotional New Morning Mercies. I want you to hear what he says. There will be moments in life when you simply don't understand what's going on. In fact, you will face moments when what the God who has declared himself to be good brings into your life things that won't seem good, may even seem bad, very bad. Now, if your faith is based on your ability to fully understand your past, present, and future, then your moments of confusion will become moments of weakening faith. But the reality is that you are not left with only two options understand everything and rest in peace or understand little and be tormented by anxiety. No, there is a third way, the way of true biblical faith, resting in the wisdom and goodness of the eternal God. Now friends, whether your life seems unbearable because of some catastrophic situation in your life or it seems unbearable because of the daily pressures that you face, we need to remind ourselves of who God is. And we need to remind ourselves of his character and his love. And we need to walk by faith, trusting that he offers grace to help in our times of need. Which leads us to the second point this morning. When life seems unbearable, turn to God. When life seems unbearable, turn to God. Affliction and suffering, whether it be physical or emotional or relational or whatever it is, is going to affect us. We are going to turn somewhere in the face of hardship, in the face of affliction. Some people will turn inward. Some people will take their eyes off of God and they'll turn inward. I used to have a friend who had this saying that, that he heard growing up, if it's to be, it's up to me. If it's to be, it's up to me, right? That was kind of a, a motto, not necessarily for his life, but he shared it with me and he knew people that kind of lived with that philosophy. If it's to be, it's up to me. So, so when difficulties come, when affliction comes, you don't turn to God. I mean, God's the cause of it. You turn to yourself. You turn to your own strength. You turn to your own wisdom. You turn to your own ability and you think you can kind of muscle through it. But the problem with such a motto is that we don't have the capacity to solve all of our problems, do we? We don't have that capacity. Turning inward might look like what Job's wife counseled Job to do in the midst of all the affliction. You remember what Job's wife said to her husband? Curse God and die. In a sense, that's turning inward. Curse God and die. Others, when life seems unbearable, turn outward, maybe to others, Maybe substances, maybe to the world, right? Unable to cope with life as it is. 
Unether, uh, unable to make sense of life as it is. Some people just want to numb themselves, right? Or they want to gather other people around them to try to solve all their problems or try to figure it all out. But implicitly, we know this doesn't work. Think about all the institutions that are built on gathering people to fix things, right? Government, Congress, United Nations. Now, I'm not saying they're worthless, But do they fix things or do they cause more problems most of the time? That's a question, right? That's a question. They can't even hardly solve our basic needs. We have struggles that run so deep that the wisdom of this world could never solve. But some will turn Godward. And that's what the Apostle Paul is telling us, right? Affliction ought to turn us Godward. Why do we face seemingly unbearable situations? Well, God's trying to get our attention. And Paul says, so that we would rely on God and not on ourselves. God wants us to abandon our dependence on ourselves, on our own wisdom, on our own power, on our own means. And he wants us to rely on him. Paul tells us, that we are to rely on God and he gives us a reason because he raises the dead. This is, I think this is really important. The the verb there is a present verb, present tense verb. It's not that just God raised the dead, referring to Jesus, but that God raises the dead. In other words, if God raises the dead, then we can trust him. You know, Resurrection is seen as like the utmost divine power. By citing God's resurrection, Paul is making a statement about his own situation, right? Pastor Kent Hughes suggests, for Paul, his affliction was tantamount to death and God's rescue was tantamount to resurrection. That's why in verse 10, Paul expresses certainty in God's ability to deliver. God has delivered past, God will deliver future, and notice what he says, and on God we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. This is pointing to an ultimate future, right? An ultimate future. God is about rescuing his people. His saving acts in the past give Paul confidence that he will deliver and rescue again. And because God raises the dead, we can be certain that God will ultimately rescue his people in the end from sin and from death. Friends, we can be sure everyone faces affliction in life. But the truth is not everyone has that hope that Paul referred to there. The only way that we have hope in God's ultimate deliverance, in his ultimate resurrection, is through faith in Jesus Christ. Through the Son of God who lived perfectly and died a sinner's death on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. And then rose again on the third day and offers today his righteousness, his standing, so that you can be made right with God, have the hope of forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. So what does it mean to rely on God? What does it mean to rely on God? Well, it means trusting not in ourselves 
depending not on our own wisdom, strength, and ability, but trusting God to bring about his will in his way in his time. Relying on God looks like seeking him in prayer. It looks like drawing near to him. It looks like pursuing him. It looks like following him, obeying him. So some examples, when you're facing a broken marriage, it means you're begging God to shape you into the husband or wife that he wants you to be, and then you live like you really want that prayer to come true, right? It means rather than trying to manipulate your spouse into something, you plead with God to do his work. Or when you're facing disease, it means pleading with God for grace to be faithful to him no matter what comes. Now, relying on him doesn't mean you don't seek medical intervention, or it doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle with emotions or, or fear, but it does mean that you continue to trust in God's goodness despite what your circumstances tell you, and that you keep believing that God will rescue you in the most profound way possible, whether here or whether in the ultimate sense, definitely forever. When you're struggling with daily tasks of raising kids, it means focusing on on God's grace, asking him for grace and patience and compassion and energy for eyes to see the big picture and not just get brought down in the moment because it's tough, because it's difficult. It means relying on God and trusting him enough to continue focusing your love on shaping your young one to know Jesus, to know God. Church, finally, we're to remember our community when life seems unbearable. Remember your community when life seems unbearable. Listen again at verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Do you see what Paul's doing there? Yeah, he's asking for prayer, that's obvious, but behind that, what's he doing? He's admitting that he needs help. He's asking for help. The great apostle needs help? Yes, and we do too. And we do too. In fact, multiple times in the New Testament, the apostle Paul asks for help. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. He mentioned the prayers of the church for his deliverance. In Ephesians, Paul asked the church to pray for his evangelistic efforts. In Colossians, Paul asked the church to pray that God would open doors for him to declare the mystery of Christ. In Romans, Paul asked for prayer to be delivered from those who oppose him. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul just says, pray for me. Pray for me. Why does Paul ask for prayer? Well, I think one of the reasons is because we know that God works through the prayers of his people. God is working through the prayers of his people. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Who is your community? Who are your friends? Who is praying for you? Who are you praying for? Who are the people in your life 
that you love and are committed to. Friends, we need this. All of us need this. So back to Paul asking for prayer. Is God obligated to answer every prayer in the exact way that people are praying? No, of course not. But God is sovereign and he's always working for the good of his people and he's always working according to the counsel of his will. And scripture teaches that God hears our prayers and not only that, that he wants us to pray. That he wants us to seek him in prayer. In fact, he invites us to pray. And as the sovereign one, God ordains both the outcomes, right, the ends, and the means to those ends. And that means that our prayers are important. That means our prayers are significant. That means our prayers are meaningful. But notice, too, that one of the main reasons that Paul is asking for prayer here is so that God would be seen as more glorious. Think about that. Paul believes that when deliverance or rescue is seen as a direct answer to prayer, that people will give thanks to God. So, so when you pray for your friend and you pray for that job or you pray for that test or you pray for that healing or, or whatever the situation is, you pray and God shows up in a really big way and he answers very specifically what happens. We praise God for that. We say, thank you, God. Thank you for moving in that way. Thank you for answering that prayer. See, Paul is most concerned that God would be glorified and that God's people would praise him, that God's people would thank him. Consider Acts chapter 12. Herod, the leader there in Jerusalem, had just killed James, the brother of John, and Peter was in jail. And Peter was likely facing the same, the same death, right? The same end. The next morning, Herod was about to dispatch Peter, we believe. And the text tells us that the church was earnestly praying for Peter. And that night, an angel of the Lord came and rescued Peter from the prison he was in, the chains he was in, and delivered him. And Peter shows up to the house where the church is gathered and the church is praying. And you remember, a servant girl opens the door and just runs off like she can't believe it. And then Peter gets there and all the people see and, and they can't believe it, but they are amazed. In other words, they're amazed at what God has done. They've been praying and now they're amazed and Peter is freed. Now, it doesn't always work out the way that we hope it will, does it? James, the brother of John, he wasn't delivered. He was put to death. Not every prayer that we pray for healing of disease will be answered in the way that we would hope to be answered. But friends, the truth is, God is good and he works with wisdom in all things. and He knows what he's doing. So through the eyes of faith then, we trust God. We believe that those who are in Christ, that God will ultimately rescue that person, even the God who raises the dead. This is our hope our ultimate hope. Now, I want to close this message with just a few things. First of all, I want to say thank you for praying, for being a praying church. Thank you for praying for me. I know that I am where I am today. Though the journey has been tough, 
because of God's grace working through your prayers. You have been faithful to pray for your broken pastor. I'm thankful for that. And I know that there are a lot of people in this room today who would say the exact same thing. If I gave you a mic, which I'm not doing because they tell me in church 101 in seminary that it's dangerous to give people a mic and just give them, right? So we're not doing that. But if I gave you a mic, you would say the same thing. You would say, thank you for praying for me. Thank you for caring for me. Thank you for being my friend, my church. Thank you. Second, don't be ashamed to ask for prayer. Don't forget your community when life seems unbearable. Why? Because we need each other. Because we need each other. So with that is an encouragement. If you don't sense that you're connected, if you don't sense that you have a community here, then invest in it. Invest in it. Be part of a BFG. Be part of a small group. Connect with people. I know sometimes it's hard to initiate that kind of a relationship, but friends, there are people here who want to connect with you. And my encouragement to you is to invest in relationships. Finally, the question for you is this. Are you confident that you are right with God? Are you confident that your sins are forgiven and that you will spend eternity with God? Or are you unsure? Are you unsure of what life after death means for you? And today I want to invite you to know Christ I want to invite you to have confidence in the gospel. I want to invite you to to have certainty of what happens after you die. If you have a question about what that means, about the gospel, about eternal life, then friend, during our invitation, we'd love to connect with you and talk to you about that. Or after the service is done, we would love to have the opportunity to share with you the hope of eternal life. If you're watching online and you have questions about that, you can click that connect card button and you can just write a little note at the bottom of that, that page and, and we wanna follow up with you. We wanna, we wanna care for you and share uh, the ultimate hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Church, God is good. Life is hard. We need him and we need each other. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy and your love. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you're the refuge. As we prayed and read earlier in the Psalms, that you are the refuge that your people can run to and find hope in. And I pray that those who are here, who are in Christ, would run to you, the refuge. I pray that those who are here but are apart from Christ would today recognize their sin and their need for a Savior and see that Jesus is the Son of God and the only hope. God, do this work. Encourage us. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Church, as we close, we would love to connect with you. If you have questions about salvation, if you have questions about church membership, if you need prayer, we are here and we would love to, um, we would love to meet with you and care for you in those ways. Would you stand and would you respond as God leads? Mm-hmm.